I think you would all agree teaching does play a vital role in both home and church. For instance, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy to parents, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And Jesus in the Great Commission said that we are to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So the question is, how can we as parents or as those teaching the church best cause other people to learn and to grow in the Lord? And arguably the most effective teaching method for small groups, for family, for small churches is more of a discussion type format rather than a lecture format. So we could call this one another teaching style. I would base that on Colossians 3.16. says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. The discussion method does take longer than the lecture method to cover the same material, but learning is greatly increased. So just to give you a few examples before we dive into it, when Jesus was in small groups, about all he did was ask questions. There are over 100 recorded questions asked by Jesus. And he didn't ask the questions because he didn't know to answer. <laughs> One educator said that Jesus came not to answer questions, but to ask them, not to settle men's souls, but to provoke them. And that's what questions can do. Paul was at Troas, and King James says he preached all night. And it looks like the mother of all sermons. But actually, it's not the case. The ESV doesn't say he preached. It says he talked with them, not at them. Later on in that passage, it says he conversed with them. And converse is related to the word conversation. So I looked up the Greek word for him talking with them. It's from dialogeto, and the lexical form of that is dialegomai, transliterated as our word dialogue. So when you look it up in the Greek lexicon, it actually means to conduct a discussion. So that's why they said that Paul talked with them, not that he preached. Other places in Acts, that same Greek word is translated as reasoned and reasoning. Then it said that Paul continued his speech. Well, now the Greek word there is logos. Logos can refer to a speech, but actually, more fundamentally, it simply means talking. Then in Acts chapter 20, verse 11, that's where we find the word that he conversed with them. And that Greek word is homileo, which means to speak with someone. It's a virtual synonym for dialogamite. So anyway, even the Apostle Paul, who had a lot to say, didn't preach at him. He conversed with them. So I would just argue that's a good way to teach. Help me brainstorm. What would be some advantages of a one-another discussion-centered learning approach? What are some advantages of teaching through questions? What they call the Socratic method. You have active engagement. Okay, we have active engagement. So a lot of singles getting engaged and married? <laughs> no. What do you mean by that? In a sermon, it's easy to space out. It's easy to lose people. They stop thinking about what's being said. They start, you know, especially in today's world, they're checking the sports score, whatever they're doing on their phone, and they're not really learning what's being taught. And this will keep active learning happening. It sure does. So they are much more engaged instead of just being in neutral. That's good. What's another advantage of this way of teaching? I think it reveals things about the congregation or about the learners that you would normally not know. So then you can teach them better, right? It's a feedback loop as to what they believe, and then you can... Because you really don't know what they're thinking unless they tell you. That's genius. So you've got to use that information wisely. Yeah, what else? 
It makes uh, people to think. So it's causing them to think. Yes. So in that sense, it's a way of teaching critical thinking skills. Yeah. Now, sadly, the products of our public education system usually don't come out with critical thinking skills. So we're learning them how to use the scriptures, handle them rightly. So even after we're gone, they know how to use the scriptures. So it's the difference between handing them a fish versus teaching them how to fish. Can you think of another advantage? It gives the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to use somebody else to bring something that the teacher didn't happen to think of when he was there. That is so true. I guess it's an admission of my own poor skills, but so many times I spent hours and hours studying a passage and then using this method. Someone will say something like that that I completely missed, and I think, wow. It can also reveal where you're communicating incorrectly. If a response back is off the wall and others not, then whatever you intended, misunderstanding of the words, context or whatever, that they go a different direction, and it reveals where you're not communicating and a correction needed, or at least redefinition or something. Yes, that's worth a lot. It is. Related to that, I would even say it allows the participants to challenge what the teacher has said. Now, hopefully the teacher is right, but the very fact that you're challenged, one, it makes it more exciting for everybody, but two, that gives you a chance to correct that wrong thinking, and people learn how you interact with that person, and I think the overall learning goes up. So I just think of the scripture says, I know one part, and I see in part. So from that, I don't think anyone's going to have it all. And by opening and engaging with others, right. you're allowing the Holy Spirit to guide all into the truth of the word from a perspective that maybe the teacher wouldn't have seen at all or, or any of the others. So. That's very true. So if we really believe in the push of the believer and the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and their lives, that's right, brother. And you're letting the Word be authority. You're not the authority. You're letting the Word right. be authority. You know, a lot of churches, the preacher is the authority, and that takes that away. It does. So many times I've talked to Christians about some Bible topic, and they're totally unable to interact with me about it, to evaluate what I've said, and they go, oh, I'll have to ask the preacher. They're so dependent on preachers, and that's not... A good situation. And I suppose this has already been said in some way, but it certainly helps avoid giving the lecture, going home, and half the crowd having no idea what you said. <laughs> but that is true. They really don't. Kind of going back to your point, the people will own what has been taught rather than right. uh, the answer right. to go back and ask the pastor. They'll together own it. Yeah. They discover the truth for themselves. Yeah. One other thing I'll add in here is that it frees the teacher. Once he's studied, it frees him from having to package his research into a polished preaching performance. Very few people can do that well to begin with, but even at that, you could spend half your available time just trying to package this thing into a performance, and this saves you from that, especially if you're bivocational. Boy, your time is now greatly saved or made more efficient. There's an educator named D.A. Blight. He said, If students are to learn to think, they must be placed in situations where they have to do so. The situations in which they are obliged to think are those in which they have to answer questions because questions demand an active response. So let's talk about how to do that. If you look at Roman numeral one on your handout, it's about three different types or categories of discussion 
questions. An effective leader is going to use all three types. I've pulled these questions based on Romans 1.16, which you can see typed out there. So let's just read each of the three. And with the idea that they're all different, you can help me take them apart and just analyze why they're different. Stephen, read Romans 1.16 for us. Romans 1.16 from ESV Version. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we'll be looking at this verse all evening. Now go ahead and read the first question for us, Stephen. What can we learn about the gospel from this verse? Now the second question. Why is salvation first for the Jew? And the third question. Following Paul's example, how should they feel about the gospel? Now, I'm not looking for the answer to the questions. I'm looking for how, in essence, these three questions are different. So help me, guys. Well, one's uh, asking for what, why, and how. (laughs) All right, we're getting there. Close. He's kind of saying what, why, and how. Are you giving me three categories, or is that one category? Well, that's the three questions. So go back to you. What were you trying to say? So it's asking what's being told to you explicitly in the verse which one does that the first what can we learn you're looking in the verse itself to get the answer from that so it's saying that's right. the gospel is the power of god to salvation right but the second one why is salvation first for the jew well you have to have context to be able to answer that you can't really get that from this verse itself you kind of have to go around and there has to be context of where of the overall writing to mm-hmm. get that answer and then mm-hmm. the other is paul has a specific so it's, it's kind of like, okay, how should I respond based on this? Or what's the example that's being set before me of how I should view the topic that's being discussed? That's very good. So notice the first word in the first question is what. A lot of times if it starts with what, you're talking about content. So the first category of question, exactly as Jeff said, would be it's an observation question. So it deals with what. The text actually says, it's like on Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, and there we go. The answer is in the verse. In theory, any lost person could answer it if he can read, because the answer is right there. So Chris said, what, why, and how? Well, that's almost right, because number two, it says why, you see? So as soon as you see why, oh, probably I've got to go somewhere else in the Bible to answer it. The answer is not right here. So now we're involving context, but we'll call that interpretation. So this is an interpretation question. Why questions tend to clarify? If I've got to go somewhere else to answer it, I'm interpreting now at this point. That's why they call that interpretive. So that's what, why. Now third, I wouldn't call that a how question unless it was, well, it does say how, doesn't it? How should we feel about this? That's an application question. That's what's it got to do with me? This is the so what, if you want to look at it that way. We had the what in number one, now we got the so what. This is what the text means for us today. And it's been said if the what doesn't lead to the so what, you hadn't talked the what correctly. Because what we're driving for is not a content dump. We're driving for application. But you got to go through these first two steps to get to the third one. Make sense? So now this is like elementary school, kind of, but you just realize there are these three types and a good lesson, you're going to have all three types. Just be conscious of that. So let's give you a test. If you look below it, I've come up with 10 questions based on Romans 1.16. So let's talk about which of the three categories each one would fall into. So Alan, read question number one for me. Of what was Paul not ashamed? Okay, so help me, guys. 
What type is that? Because the answer is in the verse. That's observation. Okay, Jeff, read number two. What does the word gospel mean? Okay, guys, what's that going to be? Yeah, why do you say it's interpretation? Because it's not there right in that word. That's right. I'd have to do a word study on gospel, and the answer is not there anyway. Okay, what's number three there, Eric? Read that one. What is the gospel message? So what would that be? Application, interpretation, or observation? That's going to be interpretation. Right, because again, that's not there. Number four, Skiva, read that for us. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Okay, guys, help us out. What is that one? Observation. Because he tells you why he's not ashamed. That's good. Chris, read number five. From what does the gospel bring salvation? Okay, guys, what would that be? That's interpretation. Right, because he doesn't tell us there. All right, number six. What did Paul mean by everyone? Yeah, it does, right there. Now, Alan, read number seven. Why is salvation first to the Jews? What's it going to be, guys? Again, you got that why there. Stephen, number eight. What is a Greek interpretation? Yep. All right. Number nine, Jace. Read that one. What would it mean for us to be ashamed of the gospel today? <laughs> okay. <laughs> finally. <laughs> finally. Application. And finally, number 10. And what should our hope of salvation be grounded? I would ultimately say that's going to be application, yeah. So I'm just stating the obvious there. So Roman numeral two is how to ask good questions. That's what we're going to deal with. My first question, y'all help me with the answer. Why is it important for the teacher to be prepared? By first studying the text before leading a discussion. If you don't know what you're talking about, you are in trouble. trouble. So this is not pooled ignorance. It's not the blind leading the blind or the bland leading the bland. You're the expert. Now, you don't want to come in and pontificate, but you are the expert for the night on that passage because presumably you studied it more than anybody else or at least more recently than anybody else. So you got to know. It'd be like leading a museum tour almost, right? Like you can take them through the museum. You can point things out. You probably know more about all the pieces than anybody else does. But if they have a question... You got to have some depth. Right. You got to have some depth. That's it. It's great to come up with the questions, but you got to be able to answer all your own questions. That's it. Now, question two, I don't know quite how to phrase this, but I think a good motto is never tell when you can ask. How is that motto consistent with the discussion teaching method? You're not there to learn. Other people, right? It's for them. So you're calling that learning out and the point. Try to have that motto. If you have that mindset, the temptation to lecture will be lessened. In a perfect setting, you're not going to tell them something unless they just can't come up with the answer. Like if you say, okay, who knows the Greek word for gospel? Silence. Tell them. Make sense? So never tell when you can ask. That would be a good motto. Number three, why is it a good discipline to write out all discussion questions in advance? Because you're never going to remember them all when you're sitting there. That's one good reason. You're never going to remember them all. And uh, it saves time for you to ask questions rather than thinking about what to write. Yeah. Since it's not a lecture, you're not going point one, two, three, four. I mean, you are guiding it, but there could be questions that tend to take it down a different road. Yes. You get lost really. So it pulls you back. That's good. You're trying to be strategic in what to teach them, but again, it's a discussion. So it's a lead discussion. It's like a guided missile or a cowboy corralling cattle in a certain direction. You're leading a discussion. You're shaping how they think. 
That's what you do. I think writing it down also makes you think through how you're going to say it to somebody. Yes. More. I can't tell you how many questions I've gone back and just crossed out because I'm like, yeah, that's too complicated. Nobody's going to get that. That's right. It's been said the weakest ink is better than the strongest memory. So back to what Jeff said. It's really difficult to come up with good questions on the fly. And this is a good discipline to have. Your questions will be of a higher caliber. And it helps me study. What I do when I study is I look at the passage and I write down every question that comes to my mind about it. And then my study is answering all those same questions. So it helps me to prepare in the first place. And then, of course, I got to go back, revise the questions and make them decent. Number four. Why is it helpful to imagine how people will respond to a question and then revise the question if necessary? I think that that's a skill that is going to take time to know, know your people. It assumes you know the people you're teaching. Know your audience. And know your, that's right. If you've never taught them before, that's harder. But if you know them, you should be able to imagine what yeah. Joe's going to say. And if you don't like what you hear him say, you need to change a question or delete it. And it stops you from chasing those rabbits, right? Because if you can imagine, oh, well, he's going to ask this, and then, I, and then he's going to ask this, and then you can kind of nip it in the bud. That's right. You don't go down that road. Another good thing is you imagine how he's answering, and then you formulate your next question based on what you think he's going to answer, and then you're more prepared. He's not going to use your words. So you know what you're going to ask next, but if you can take the words he said and put them into your question, people like to hear their own answer said back. It really gets them excited, more excited, like you're really listening to them. So you can tweak your pre-existing question very easily when you anticipate what he's going to say. So just take the time to do that. When I'm teaching and things don't go as I had wished they did, thinking I might teach this passage again someday, I always save my questions, but I'll go through and Boy, that was a stinky question. I'll cross it out and rewrite it so the next time I, not like Custer at Little Bighorn, I don't get wiped out by it. It happens. Question five, and this is related to what Eric had just said. Why is it critical to arrange your questions in a logical sequence? I would go back to the share time Daryl gave several months ago to our young people about having a start and an end and a trail that you're going so that you're not going off in all these different places. So arranging your questions logically helps you to take the people involved in the conversation and that you're teaching from yes. point A through logical thought processes to bring them to an evident conclusion you're headed towards. We're not just asking questions for the sake of asking questions and having a random discussion. You are guiding this discussion. If you look back at those 10 test questions we had on the previous page, I arrange my questions based on the topics in the text and the order of the words in the text. My first question might be a big picture question. So look at number one of what was Paul not ashamed? Well, that's a big picture question. And I try to ask a question where the answer is more toward the end so they have to read the whole thing before they turn their minds off. But see, if you ask the question before he reads it, their minds now are in gear, and they're looking for the answer. So number two, what does the word gospel mean? Well, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, that's the first word I chose to deal with. You could have said, well, who is I, or what does it mean to be ashamed? But, okay, I'm going to deal with the word gospel. Now, what is the gospel message? Well, that's related to that word. Number four, why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Oh, here we go. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's the answer. Four, that's his next topic, because... It is the power of God for salvation. So then, number five, 
From what does the gospel bring salvation? That word salvation is the next one I wanted to deal with, just going right down the line there. So first I dealt with gospel, then I talked about it's the power of God, and I would deal with salvation. What did Paul mean by everyone? Well, see, that's the next word, salvation to everyone. So I wanted to talk about that. Why is it first to the Jew? That's the next idea, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So see, I'm just going right down the row, either with the idea or the words that make up that idea. It makes it easy for me. And, you know, people don't want to hear what I think anyway. What matters is what the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write. And so that's why I try to do that. You can do anything you want to, obviously, but I find that easy. I have a saying in marketing that the medium is the message. And it's not just about, like, arranging your questions in a logical sequence, but using your questions to set the tone for the group. So I usually start out with something really broad that everyone can participate in. And that just, like, sets the tone for the whole room that, okay, this is the way it's going to be. Then you can get down into, like, okay, this is actually what I want you to learn. And you can get more specific, too, as you go down that logical funnel. That's a good point. I failed to deal with the introduction at all in this. <laughs> That's very good. Would that tend to do the same thing if you're studying the whole passage? Like, I mean, if you're studying three, four, five verses, study the ideas in order as they're presented. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Come back to it. Yeah. It's rare that I would teach one verse. Right. Yeah. But no, yes, I would have a whole. Yeah, but, that's right. But just do the same. I mean, basically mm-hmm. the same thing, but just with each idea that's presented, mm-hmm. each argument that's laid out. That's right. All right. Number six. Although your questions will be written out in advance, why should you know them well enough to ask them in a conversational tone using your natural voice, inflection, and everyday vocabulary? Well, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a conversation, right? It's a dialogue. It's what you're talking about the first words, and so it keeps it more informal, more intimate. People are more engaged. Uh, when you feel like you're being asked questions on a test, you'd like in your school, and some people just tune out. Yeah. Although your questions will be written out in advance, why should you know? <laughs> you got to know it well enough that they don't even realize you've got it written down. I think see it, but you just got to sound like it's well, what just about part if, of you. What about if you're using an overhead? Do you still post them and do that? No, I'm pretty dull. I've never used an overhead projector in a Socratic Bible study. That's To me, that's more reserved for lectures into large groups. I've never thought about it, though, so can you imagine doing that? Would you do that? When we were going through Galatians, I'm trying to remember if I put any of my questions up. And I don't recall if I did it or not. It's not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. I think of this type of teaching in a smaller group where if if Jace goes to sleep, I'll just ask him a question and wake him up. I don't have to do things like PowerPoint to hold people's attention. I'm not saying not to. I just never thought about that. So, I mean, you've used overheads Mm. teaching in the larger group. Yeah. But you would leave the questions off? Right. Just ask the questions? Yeah. Now, what I have done, I remember I taught through Matthew's Gospel one time, Socratically, and I only used the PowerPoint to show photographs of places where Jesus was going or things he was talking about or maps or something like that. But I didn't actually put and my verses, questions people would read. You could put verses up there. That's right. You know, at work, we have to get presentations of CEOs and whatnot. And we'll put a question on the slide. Some people hear a question better. Some people read it better. And just make sure you have it high contrast, not like yellow on a blue background or something. You know, and big enough sure. type. Yeah. Using PowerPoint is one more step of something else to have to do. So if nothing else, if you're hurting for time, don't do the PowerPoints. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's thank you. But I think if you have a point, you don't need PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you. Skiva, start out reading number seven. Let's see how far we get with that. Launch the discussion of each new paragraph of scripture with an observation question. Ask just prior to having someone read the text. What purpose is served by asking an observation question first? Then give an example. Please read Romans 1.16 and tell me, why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? What purpose did I just accomplish by asking before it was read? Priming the pump. Okay, you prime the pump. Have them read the verse, and then you ask the question, everybody's going to go right back and read the verse over again. So give them something to look for. All right, that's just directed reading. That's what, it is. Can you clarify what prime the pump means? So in the old days, when you had a well, in order to get water up, you would have to pour some water into the pump to get the vacuum going and suck the water to the top. So you have to kind of ask them a question. They need to know what they're reading for. And then that way, when they read, like Steve said, they, they they're, they're looking for it as they're reading. So they don't have to read it twice. Nothing else that saves time. I've mentioned this before, but if you're in your car and it's in neutral, you rev the engine. It's going, but it's not going anywhere. Asking the question puts it in first gear, and then you got traction. By the way, that assumes you're teaching from a translation of the Bible that's laid out in paragraphs. When you teach an epistle, you should think paragraphs. Well, don't use a version that's not laid out in paragraphs. For example, the King James, every verse is a paragraph. In the New American Standard, every verse is a paragraph, and it just invites people to read into it and take it out of context and eisegesis. So find NIV or an ESV or some version that's laid it out in paragraphs. Now, number eight. Once you have asked a quality question, be confident. Look at the group, smile, and wait for an answer. Don't be afraid of silence. What is the purpose of quietly and patiently waiting for a response. It gives people time to think. One, people are hesitant, but mm-hmm. if you never give people a chance to engage, you're going to be the one talking all night long. Mm. That's right. So if it's really a good question, they do need time to think and process it. Okay. Also, if you're teaching a group and all their lives they've been trained to be pupitators, so you just sit down, shut up, and listen, it's going to be like dynamite under them to get them used to talking. So just be quiet and smile. And usually the tension gets so great, somebody's going to say something after a while. But if you're sure it's a good question, wait them out. And that's a training process of the group. Reflecting this back on us, don't be nervous. Don't be afraid of silence. Don't be so jittery you don't give them a chance to answer. Welcome silence. A lot of people hate silence. Now, question nine, I have some questions here. They're all the same category. I want to know the function of these questions. What else do you see in this verse? Would anyone like to add anything to that? Would you explain your answer more fully? Why do you say that? What am I trying to do with that type of question? We give opportunity for the Holy Spirit to guide okay. the, the, the group into truth, right? Because you're allowing mm-hmm. someone, you're giving permission to someone who's okay. not used to being in a Socratic environment and they're right. used to being that pew potato, as you called it, right? You're giving them permission or authority to be able to bring what they've learned in their reading of the verse. They might have a cross-reference that no one else had yeah. to pull it together. So it just and instead of it correcting, them. Sorry. Yes. And instead of correcting them, you're trying to bring clarity. If they're off the mark a little bit, you can kind of refocus it back in. You can. And, you know, even if somebody's wrong, to a large extent, I'm just glad they're thinking. 
you turn a ship when it's moving. So once they get them yeah. thinking, okay, we can work with that. Thank you. Yes, also, David. Nobody sees everything in one instant. Right. Think that you are unveiling. That's right. Their observation. Right. So if you didn't have oil in your engine, it would seize up. So what these kind of questions do is like pouring oil into machinery. We're trying to get people used to talking and looking and sharing and that kind of thing. The end objective of the discussion is to learn. That's right. Learn the right thing. But would when you ask an open-ended question like, would you like to add anything? And somebody brings in something that is off the mark. Which will happen. Which will happen. Mm-hmm. So would, would you correct him then and there, or? But if you don't correct it, would it not affect the, mm. the objective of the the teaching session where they would get sure not right? Well, if it, when you say off the mark, if it's flat out wrong, you have to decide how wrong is it. But if it's just a tangent, then you mm. can just say, "Well, that's an interesting point. Let's get back over here to this." So it depends on how you handle it. But yes, be prepared. That is going to happen, but that's actually a good problem because, again, you've got people thinking, which is what you want. You can ask the congregation if they have anything to, any input on that, if it's a nice mm-hmm. congregation. Mm-hmm. And then they will correct. They will auto-correct. Self-correct. And you can also ask yeah. them a question, would a better way to say that be, or would you like to read X reference that might counterpoint them, or that sort of thing? You can also, if it's really grievous, just say, well, you know, I'm not sure I can agree with you on that one. I appreciate you thinking about it. Go on. Yeah. It's whatever. Hey, Gerald, question 10. Why is it helpful to periodically summarize the group's discussions and ideas, reviewing what has been said? What do you think about that, Gerald? Have you got any ideas on why that might be helpful? I think it helps to keep the discussion going and on track. And so, like, if somebody maybe asked a question earlier that got, you know, maybe some of the people's minds going down a rabbit trail. You're just kind of bringing them back to the main discussion so we can all be back uh, on the same road. That's right. Though I don't use PowerPoints a lot, I do use the whiteboard a lot, and that's where I might write something on the board summarizing what's been said so far. And people get excited if they've told you these things because you led them to say it, and then they see what they said written up on the board Again, that's motivational for a lot of people. So, And repetition is the key to learning. Remember that. So all those who, as he said, have been distracted or got left behind, they can kind of catch up. Number 11, why is it important to give careful attention to application questions? That's your takeaway point, but that's the end goal. Mm. That's the end goal. That's right. And that's why I said if the what, the content, doesn't lead to so what, the application, I would say you haven't taught the what correctly. Now, that can be the hardest type of questions to formulate and potentially the most offensive to people. But we do want to evoke life change, not just dump content. We don't want a sterile academic exercise. You listen to some of the real popular teachers on the radio. The way they apply it is through personal illustration. They tell an illustration of how this was true in their lives or somebody else's life, because people like stories and they listen. We haven't talked about illustrations in this, but you'll have illustrations of things, and that's a good way to apply things is through illustration, too. And, of course, you're going to be asking questions about it, and they'll come up with some great applications you didn't think of. A comparable area where you can use illustrations from the Bible 
elders say yes. questions like, it would be finding a couple a little bit like, name a couple of stories that come to mind from the Old Testament where a person's in this situation and that's the issue. And That'd be like, great. Naomi. That'd be great. That, then, yes. But you bring it into today. That example, well, the New Testament, all of them example. So there's okay. a correlation. So we're saying the different, but same heart, same stage, same. And then you yes. kind of work that out. That's smart, Alan. Very good. You can almost go shopping in the Old Testament for illustrations of New Testament and teachings. New. That's really good. Now, number 12, I've already violated. Why should you be aware of calling on specific persons, Daryl, to answer interpretive and application questions? Like, Bill, are you saved? <laughs> <laughs> Why should you not do that? Because <laughs> nobody likes to be put on the spot. And sometimes you don't know what the answer is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> you might be sorry you asked. That's true. And they don't feel threatened. That's right. That's a turnoff. They won't come back and they quit talking. We don't want that. So ask it of the whole group, not just calling on poor old Bill. But what about those people who keep silent and never speak? I would be sure, one, they can read. And two, I would want them involved in the discussion. So I would ask that person either an observation question that I feel like the answer is right there. Or, well, you've been quiet, Skeeva. What do you think about that? Just a, a non-threatening, simple question. But do be looking. Like, I overlooked the fact that I'd been skipping Gerald all night. I got a little help over here. from the, Yeah. But be looking. Who's quiet? Who's not listening? Who's on his phone? And then ask that person to read or something to try to get them back in a group. All right. Thirteen. Why is it necessary for the teacher to spend time cultivating the ability to ask the right questions? Because the right questions provoke right answers. It's worth the time because the right question with the right answer. It's just an art, and you've got to develop practice helps. So we're trying to lead people, again, in discovering biblical truth for themselves. We're not just telling them what you've discovered, all right? So look at your notes. As Jay said, he writes out his questions. He thinks about how they're going to answer, how it's flowing. He crosses out some of them, revises some of them. After it's done, go back. If you didn't like the way it went, do an after-action report. Change it. Because hopefully you'll be teaching that passage of Scripture again. Now, number three, pitfalls to avoid. These first few questions here are, again, based on Romans 1.16. These are crummy questions. I want you to tell me why they're crummy. The first one there. Was Paul ashamed of the gospel? Now, what's wrong with that? Nope. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No further discussion. So it's a dead end. So don't ask a question that has a yes-no response. Now, you could save it by saying, "Uh, why do you say that? (laughs) But now somebody rephrase that question for me better. The idea of that question, rephrase it for me. Why would Paul have the temptation to be ashamed? Okay. Why would Paul even be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Or, why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? So, anything like that. You'll see, okay, here's number two crummy question. What are these six great truths that are evident in Romans 1.16? What's wrong with that? <laughs> Woo, you can read my mind. <laughs> you said there's only four. <laughs> six great truths. Am I saved? <laughs> You're probably not saved. That's right. Oh, All right, so we don't want to conduct a mind-reading contest. Rephrase that question for me. And Jason's going to rephrase it. What are the four great truths? <laughs> now, go, go ahead, Jeff. What are some of the truths evident yeah. in Romans? What are some of the truths? You've been looking on my paper. 
what are some of the truths? Yeah, that's right. All right. The third crummy question here. Who got salvation first? Who is salvation for? And what is salvation from? <laughs> What's wrong with it? It's more than one question than one question. Yeah. Okay. It's too complex. Yeah. Way too broad. Complex. Way too broad. So if you've got and or but in a question, probably you're making a mistake. <laughs> so this is where K-I-S-S comes in. Keep it simple somehow. <laughs> All right. Let's keep your questions clear. Now, fourth example. What aspects of the atonement are evident in Romans 1.16 that are consistent with the Reformer's concept of soteriology? Superior, what did you say? That was me. They all look good to me. I lost the group, except for him down there. All right. So you got to bust those 25-cent words up into five-cent words. And I was told by a good teacher, if you can keep your vocabulary to Anglo-Saxon roots, you'll always be understood. It's when you use a Latin root that people are going to misunderstand. They don't know. So try to speak Anglo-Saxon and you'll probably do a lot better. So do away with atonement, reformer, esoteric. <laughs> well, you're getting there. Now, atonement is Anglo-Saxon. However, the rest of them are pretty bad. Is that kind of the USA Today method? You know, you write it for a you oh, write for questions well, for do a that. sixth grader. Okay, do that. A sixth grade level. Yeah, yeah. No, I in think that's smart. Dumb it down. That's what well, it's no, see, that's no. the thing. No. We've got, like, no. data scientists, and, you know, that's all they do is data all the time. But they can't explain it to anybody. So what good are they? Very smart, but they don't know how to communicate. Right. There is a skill and an art and an intelligence to simplifying complex things. Mm. Yeah. So what we have is profound concepts that we are not dumbing down. We are clothing them in language that everybody understands and not Amen. trying to use a bunch of big egghead words, Chris. All right, next question. According to Romans 1.16, salvation is for everyone who believes. What is the relationship between salvation and speaking in tongues? <laughs> you like that one? <laughs> what is the relationship between salvation and speaking in tongues? What's wrong with that question? Um, no it's completely out of context. That's right. You open the whole can of worms. People are going to stop coming to your class if you <laughs> that's what you do every week. Well, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Well, that's that. You know, I mean, I didn't want to come right out and say that. All right. Next, what will likely happen if the teacher gets bogged down in minute details of the text, majoring on the minors? You never get through the text. Don't get to the point. Yeah. Okay. You don't ever get to the point. What effect is that going to have on the group? Leave them frustrated. Yeah. Great intro to a sermon. Great intro to a Bible discussion, but there's nothing in it for me. You've probably all heard of these preachers. They're going to preach the Romans, and it takes him 13 years. Every verse is a sermon. Deal with the passage and try to get at least through a paragraph. Sometimes one verse, all right, but try to get at least through a paragraph. Yeah. Cover at least some cohesive unit of thought that the Holy Spirit inspired that author to write. Yes. Now I know why you have teachers that take six months to get through six chapters of a book. Now you know. Well, they haven't had this course till now. Now, why should the teacher show enthusiasm and avoid being a dullard? <laughs> to keep the audience awake. There's nothing spiritual about being boring. Look, if you're not excited, they won't be either. And if you go to sleep, they're going to go to sleep. So if the class is lethargic, probably your fault. And remember this, too, guys. Very few people can 
pull off an interesting monologue. But many more people can pull off an interesting Bible discussion. So there's hope for more of us that way. All right, now let's look at common problems. Leading a dynamic Bible discussion is like sailing a ship through changing winds and crashing waves and strong currents. It's going to take active piloting. You are not merely a facilitator. You're actively teaching the truth by a guided discussion. you got to see yourself as the pilot. So these are some reefs that you're going to have to navigate if your ship doesn't sink. The first problem, Kathy Chatty. When I was a kid, all the little girls had these dolls that talked. They were Kathy Chatty or Chatty Kathy. Chatty Kathy. Thank you. Now, this refers to somebody who's over-responsive, who answers every question immediately before anybody else can, who monopolizes every discussion. Now, the cousin to Chatty Kathy is Mr. Know-it-all. So now let's go to the question, Eric. Read that question number one for me. How might a teacher handle someone who talks too much? How do you handle a student who does that? Ask a different question. <laughs> do what? Ask you a question that he cannot answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's one creative approach. Does somebody else have an idea? <laughs> See how I handle that bad answer? <laughs> I have, I've heard you say this multiple times, and I think it's effective. Someone who hasn't answered yet. Yeah. Uh, answer right. that question. Someone who hasn't shared yet, or something like that. That's good. Or somebody on this side of the room. Somebody on the background. Yeah. Somebody who's <laughs> somebody, not sitting in this seat. <laughs> somebody whose name doesn't rhyme yeah. with James. Yeah. <laughs> Now, if you know the person and you have a relationship, what you got to do later is take him aside, ask him to help you to get the quiet people to speak up by holding back so you enlist his help. That makes sense? But you got to deal with it. If you don't deal with this person, you're going to sink the ship. you got to do it. Question number two has to do with sidetrack sin. Now, There are people whose spiritual gift is raising topics unrelated to whatever the point is of the passage that you're studying. Their ministry seems to be to get Bible studies off track. I really think that these people get bored. Maybe they know what you're going to say. So for self-entertainment, they introduce some new topic, which is really a selfish thing to do. And they throw down the gauntlet. Now, what you've got to do is not pick it up. You've got to recognize when a rabbit runs across the trail and not chase that rabbit. You understand? So you got to have enough discipline to realize this is going to happen. It's going to happen on a regular basis. You cannot take the bait. So the question is, how should a teacher respond to an invitation to run down a rabbit trail? You could acknowledge it and not address it. That's right. a great thought. Appreciate you sharing that. And then redirect to what your mm. question is or what the topic is. And it probably is a great thought. And you can even say, let's talk about that offline. afterwards. Yeah, offline, so to speak. That's good. Let's yes, talk, thank you. Afterwards. That's right. Because you do appreciate a person thanking, right? That's good. And they never talk to us. No, you should. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Well, you know, a lot of times they don't really want to talk afterwards. It's boring at that point. But yes. Number three, just wrong answers. Okay, how can you tactfully handle a wrong answer? We don't want to put him down. We don't want to embarrass him. If we can help it. So what do you do? We can agree to disagree. We can agree to disagree. Agreeably. That's good. What else? You have to understand where the answer is coming from. 
you have to understand that person's maturity. Are they still spiritual milk? Are they still mm-hmm. learning? Because you don't want to you don't want to crush a bruised reed, so to speak. I know I took that scripture out of context, but that's what came to mind. You have to be understanding of who it is that's giving the answer, where it's at, and if it is completely wrong uh-huh. to the point that it could harm someone else leaving without it ever being corrected, you still have to be able to correct it, but give opportunity to talk more with them afterwards about why or what right. scripture is supporting it. And that's a tough one. Well, it depends on how bad it is. That's right. The Bible says that two, this is not about teaching, but two or three prophets speak and the others pass judgments. So y'all mentioned this earlier. Let the group, a lot of people have enough sense that they eh, don't like that. Imagine you're in a Bible study and somehow you're talking about who is Jesus. Well, I believe he's divine, but I don't believe he's God. Well, that's pretty wrong. You don't want to leave that one out there. So you could say something like, well, I appreciate you sharing that. Our consensus here is that he actually is God in human form. We'll talk about that later, though. And you just go right on with it. So you just try not to pour cold water and embarrass him if you can help it. If you try to pry a bone out of a dog's mouth, he's going to bite you. But if you lay down a stake in front of him, he'll drop that bone. Truth has that same effect on people. So if you can graciously show why you do think he's God, if that's appropriate for the lesson, without embarrassing him, a lot of times he'll change the mind. Now, point four concerns hard questions from the group to you. So, Gerald, what do you do and what should you do if somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to? I think that to be really positive with them and almost praise them for asking such a good question to tell them that, you know, I haven't really thought of that, but I want to. So let me think on that and I'll get back to you on it. And then also offer for somebody else to answer that question. Mm. And what would some of you out there say? And if somebody gives a really good answer, they say, well, that's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Cheryl. But what you don't want to do, don't pretend to be a know-it-all. It's really not hard to win a case of stump the dummy. Again, you got to be secure in your manhood, so to speak. To not just, I don't know, that's a great question. I didn't look that up. Number five concerns untrained minds. We've discussed this. A lot of people just don't seem to be able to reason clearly or even read competently. So when you teach by asking questions, how does that help the students overcome a lack of critical thinking skills? Well, I think one of the ways that, that one, it, it forces them to think about the question to try to come up with an answer. But someone who's not able to think through or come up with an answer, hearing someone else process that question, right, and come up, come to a conclusion or give an answer to them, give them an example of what, of how you would think through that to, to answer it. So. so you learn by doing. Yeah, so in a loving atmosphere, your purpose is to train them to reason well. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're saying. It's, in that sense, they learn from groupthink. Now, number six is what I call contentious. Carl, misery loves company. The world is full of miserable people who are quick to throw some of it your way. Hurting people hurt others. Second Timothy 2, 23 through 26, gives us some hint how to respond to contentious people. They're out there and glad they show up, but boy, they can sure cause a problem. So somebody read that for us, 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26, and just what do we come up with from that of how we should begin to handle these kind of people? Have nothing to do with the foolish, ignorant controversies. 
You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I realize it's hard to remember to do this when you're ambushed, but what does this tell us about responding to contentious people? I see three things here. It speaks about the attitude, ability, and approach. The attitude should be kind. The ability should be that you should have the knowledge each. The approach should be patiently doing that. Wow. Immediately he comes up with three A's from this passage. Man, he's got it. He's got it. I was going to say he's taught on it before. Uh But that's good. There you go. I think he just used chat GPT. (laughs) (laughs) Give me three words and start the day. Amen. Thank you. But notice, not quarrelsome, kind, patiently enduring evil, correcting with gentleness. And you just you avoid avoiding things. I mean, that's what it says. I'm not going to ignorant verse you, right. so walk away from it. Well, I think keeping the main goal in mind, too, of what are we here for? We're here to make sure that we lead them to repentance so that they may be saved. We, goal. we know that whoever is talking in that way is already in the flesh. Yeah. If you engage them in some kind of way, all you're going to do is give them more reason to be in the flesh, yeah. and then they're going to wind up being in a bad place and it'll be partly... Your fault. Yeah. Amen. Which means you are uh-huh. defending the truth, but you are disobeying what the truth says are defending. That That's is good. by being kind, able, gentleness. So many people defend it by disobeying it, the truth. It's a sad action. So they try to defend it by disobeying. Yeah. yeah. Amen. All right. Let's go to number five, the philosophy of teaching. Now, this is kind of a fill in the blank. I couldn't always come up with questions. But anyway, number one, you as teacher must assume responsibility to make sure... Something takes place. Let's do a mind reading contest. What takes place? Learning Learning is what I'm looking for. When teachers teach five-year-olds, they do everything they can to make the kids learn and get involved. But somehow when you get up in the higher adults, the teacher doesn't do that anymore. And it becomes more just a boring lecture. No. So you do whatever it takes to be sure people learn. And I'm suggesting one of the best ways to do that is to serve them. I died a really good question. (laughs) And get them involved in a discussion. If nobody learns, you haven't taught. Okay, number two, teach to meet needs in people's lives. Your lesson, and for that matter, the Bible, does not have a need to be taught. It is the people present who have needs. So as Skiva has alluded to, we are teaching for life change. If you can surface a felt need in people's lives, they're going to pay more attention to what you say. Imagine you're on a flight between New York and Philly, and it's a commuter flight, and the same business people fly it every day, and the stewardess gets up there. She starts going about the float under the seat and how to do the seat belt and the air mass dropping down. I guarantee you, nobody's paying her a look of attention. They're reading the newspaper and doing their phones. Nobody's paying attention. But if they were at 10,000 feet, and the pilot comes on and says, we've lost an engine, and we might have to ditch in the Atlantic Ocean, please pay attention to the stewardess as she tells you about our safety procedures now all of a sudden, everybody's going to be looking at her. Well, so what happened? The felt need was surfaced. When we're talking about meeting people's needs, 
when you're teaching through these questions and stuff, hoping the scriptures alone will do it, but if you can find a way to surface a felt need, it's going to be more effective. And that's where Jace was talking about more, if you have an introduction that does it, to funnel their thinking. Because you ought to know where this is headed. You ought to know your application before you even start. So design it that way so they want to know how to scratch this itch that you're going to point out to them. Your point there is, though, that you need to create a felt need. Keep that always in mind. Yeah, the goal is not to get through your material. So create a felt need, but certainly figure out what the application is on that passage, and that's what you're driving toward. So number three, you must have a clear objective in mind when teaching. And that objective should be based on the point of the passage that you're teaching to help you focus, always be able to boil your lesson down to an irreducible minimum. Be able to state in a sentence or two the main point of the biblical text being studied. Now, if you did have PowerPoints, that might be where that comes in handy. But you don't want such a cloud of information out there that people don't quite get the point of it. Be sure there is a point. What's the point that's being said here? What's the application that drives from that point? Every paragraph will have a main point. So that's why I said if you can at least cover one paragraph of an epistle, that's good. Now, Ezra 7.10, I thought was a good example for teachers. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So the lesson for us, obviously, we're studying it, but we need to do it ourselves, live it, and teach it. So it's got to be part of you. I think it's also in order there on purpose, right? You can't just teach it after you've studied it. You have to be doing it, applying the teaching to or the study to your own life before you get up and teach it. I think that's power behind it. One of the things I appreciate about some of the teachings is the I've been working through or we've been working through or in our life we've seen this. So Good. Integrity. Number five, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 6, talks about teaching. We can learn about teaching from that. So someone read 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 6 for us. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from those, have wandered away in vain discussions. So just a few observations about teaching from that passage. What should be the aim of your teaching? Charge. Love that comes from a pure heart. That's your faith. That's right. You don't do that, he says, you wander into vain discussion. Titus 2.1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's right. And Ephesians 4.5 says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So it just keeps things in perspective. What I'd like to propose for homework is that, you know, you've got to practice it. Take your favorite Bible verse, not your favorite book, not your favorite chapter, not your favorite paragraph, but keep it short. Your favorite Bible verse, and you lead us in a discussion of your favorite Bible verse using the principles of these questions and guided discussion and that kind of thing, and we'll help you critique it. Mm. So I think that's a manageable thing. You know, aim for a five to ten minute discussion maximum, and we can all do that. So, supposed to be fun, not terrifying. I think you guys can handle that. Uh, I call Jesus wet. <laughs>
<laughs> I can call Romans 1 16. We're going to have to pee on this, right? We're going to be Okay. All right. Well, thank you guys. Well, we met it. It's good. Praise the Lord. Well, Stephen David, on behalf of all the believers in India, would you lead us in a concluding prayer? Can the prayer be monologue or dialogue? <laughs> well, you can attempt dialogue, but God's probably not going to answer you out loud anyway. So go ahead. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful time of discussion, laughing, learning, correction, rebuke, and education, edification that we had at this time. Thank you for Brother Steve for working hard to teach us how to have interactive Bible study. Help us a lot to practice them wisely by the power and the wisdom of your spirit and help us to become faithful Bible teachers, able teachers who would be able to build the church as an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. Thank you and praise you and we commit our lives and the church to you for your glory. You continue to build your church. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.